0: You are listening to this is Cruise Radio Rewind, real reviews from real cruisers.
1: Super excited about today's interview because I had a chance to sit down with Carnival's entertainment architect, Joe Farkas. Joe pretty much designed every single Carnival ship from 1977 all the way up until I believe he his last ship was Carnival Magic, but he stayed with Carnival Corporation until 2014, We covered a lot of ground in this interview, including how he came up with the idea of the funnel. That was Joe's idea. He walks us through that. Also, what's up with all the neon lighting on the carnival ships? Joe tackles that question and a lot more. Also, Joe gave me six books to give away, so you'll want to listen to this interview closely. So Joe Farkas was the entertainment architect for Carnival Cruise Line, Holland America, and Costa Cruises from 1977 to 2014. His new book, Design on the High Seas, Setting the Scene for Entertainment Architecture Aboard Cruise Ships, was just released, and he's joining us today. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Hi, it's good to be here. I want to just jump right in here and ask you, how did you get involved with maritime architecture?
0: Just by dumb luck, in a way. Uh, I was, uh, by the way, I'm, I was always interested in ships, so it's really uh, super lucky, ironic that I got into uh, actually designing ships. Years ago, I was working for an architect in Miami Beach, Morris Lapidus, who was famous for doing hotels and and things of that nature. And uh, I met Ted Harrison uh, in that capacity. He was uh, Carnival had bought their second ship, uh, their sorry, their first ship, the Mardi Gras, and I just was briefly involved with that no real design work but then when they got their second ship the what became the carnival i was the project manager on the ship and uh you know the 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 building uh design field was in a real recession there was almost no work in the office so that gave me the time to actually supervise the construction get contractors and actually pick up some tools and do some work myself And uh, that's how I really got to know Ted, or or better yet, that's how he got to know me. (laughs) And uh, the Carnival turned out to be, well, first of all, it was a seat-of-your-pants conversion, a very low budget. And, uh, you know, when I called contractors to do some work, they knew me, and they said, okay, who's this work for? I said Carnival Cruise Lines. The first thing they said is, okay, we need to check first before we do anything. So it was quite a different company then. I had a falling out with Lapidus, and I had heard that Ted Harrison uh, was um, thinking about buying a third ship, an old ship, and converting it. And I made a pitch to him, and uh, for some miraculous reason, he gave me the job. And that was in 1977, and that began my career. It allowed me to quit my job, open my own uh, little office, and uh, begin working on ships. and uh, And that just grew and grew and grew to a point where... At one point in time, I was working at various stages of four sh- cruise ships at one time, and my office consisted of myself, my wife, and uh, two Finnish uh, designers who uh, worked for me. and that was it. And we did a you know an amazing amount of work with the I'm sure if you did a ratio of, of design work compared to staff, it would, it would be a new world's record if there <laughs> were such a thing.
1: When y'all were converting ships like Mardi Gras and the the Carnival, like these days, they're doing these refurbishments in a matter of like, you know, 38 days or 58 days in Mm state-of-the-art shipyards. Was it the same back then?
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) we did it. I remember the ship came in, uh, the the Carnival arrived in Miami actually on January 1st, Mm -hmm. um, 1976, I believe. And uh, we had about two weeks that we worked uh, alongside. The ship was tied up at the old Coast Guard station. We did everything uh, ourselves on board with workmen and uh, a staff of people, Italians mainly, who you know who worked on the ship. And then the ship had to go to dry dock for a week and then back. So we had, I would say, total of about three weeks to do this job. Wow. Uh, but there is no comparison whatsoever to today's conversions, which are multi-multi million dollar deals. This was. I mean, from the interior design point of view, this was, I don't know, maybe a half a million dollars, maybe not that much. So um, totally, totally different. You know, it's difference between a skyrocket and a rocket to the moon.
1: <laughs> you coined the phrase entertainment architect. What's the difference between that title and like a naval architect? Okay, well, it's it's actually
0: entertainment architecture. I'm an architect, and, uh, and I came up with the phrase entertainment architecture because it just it just happened i when new ships came out carnival always asked me to talk to the media to the press that came on board and i always did a ship tour it took around you know how many media would be there could be 30 people more or less Mm -hmm. at any one time and i would walk them through the ship and uh, describe what i did in the various rooms and some anecdotes about what happened during the design or during the construction and so forth one day as i was talking it struck me that you know that this is uh, the 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 uh, an overall Underlying description of the experience on board had a great deal to do with entertainment, and I don't mean entertainment that you see on a stage. I mean where you, as the passenger or the guest on board, are the star of the show, and everybody that is there to to wait on you, bring you a drink, even entertain and so forth. It's all part of uh, of entertainment, and I just sort of blurted out. So what I do is entertainment architecture. It made such sense to me at that moment in time uh, because uh, that's exactly what it was. I mean, I used the uh, it's in the book, an analogy of movies of how I look at what the experience or the analogous experience of a passenger coming to the ship and uh, finally going on a cruise, much like going to a movie where you take your car, you go to the theater, you buy a ticket, you buy some popcorn, maybe you sit in the auditorium and, uh, and then the lights go down and the magic begins on the screen. And I thought to myself, most people I think are sitting there in one way or another in the dark, watching the magic on the screen and thinking, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was up there in this bright light and the magic and doing things. And that's the mindset that I use both for myself as well as what I think the, uh, the guests or passengers on board would appreciate. So, I wanted to keep their interest up. I wanted to give them a variety of things to do. I wanted to give life to the phrase "a city at sea," and you know, cities that are popular for people on vacation have lots of things to do and many, you know, many different feelings of architecture and design, and, and that gives it vitality. And this is what I try to capture in a uh, ship-like way.
1: I remember my very first cruise in the '90s. I walked onto Carnival Fantasy, and mm-hmm. I stepped into the atrium. I think it was like on deck seven, and I was just in awe, and I will never forget that moment. So it sounds like what you were just explaining with the whole movie kind of translates into your design of the atrium on the fantasy class ships.
0: I couldn't have said it better if I wrote the script for you. Oh.
1: You were also, and for the listeners who don't know, you were the man behind the signature carnival funnel or whale tail, as some call it. How did you yeah. develop that idea? It's an
0: interesting story. I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can. On the first ship, the Carnival... Ted Arison invited me to go on board the inaugural cruise, which I thought was damn nice of him. But I also thought, oh, you know what? I'm not even, uh, what, why would I do this? I'm going to feel claustrophobic. I'm not going to like it. Well, that wasn't true at all. But during the cruise, Ted and I were up on deck one night and we were just looking at the funnel on the old Carnival with the smoke belching out of the top. And and he just offered me uh, this explanation. He said, Joe, you know, the funnel isn't just a hallmark of a cruise line or, or a shipping company. It's also there for a technical reason. The smoke that comes out of the uh, out of a stack is not some benign smoke that just goes away. In fact, it's precipitated oil droplets that come from the burning of the uh, uh, oil, you know, fuel oil uh, that drives a ship. And if that smoke gets on the deck or, you know, or falls down onto the ship, it makes a mess that uh, requires a fair amount of maintenance to to keep clean. So the the idea in designing a funnel is that it's designed in such a way that carries the smoke off. Okay. So now fast forward a couple of years when we started building, started design work on the first new build, which became the Tropical. And Ted, coming from a shipping company, had a, you know, a real... Uh, appreciation of the lore and traditions of the sea. So he wanted a great funnel to, say, Carnival Cruise Lines. And the naval architects worked on it, and they presented him with things, but nothing tickled his fancy. So one day he said to me, Joe, he said, why don't you take a chance, a shot at designing a funnel uh, for this ship? And he tried to draw something, which were a bunch of squiggles on paper that meant absolutely nothing. So at some point when we were in uh, Kobe, Japan talking about specifications for this new ship, the Tropical, the conversation got into engines and things that I wasn't interested in. And I began thinking about funnels. And then I began thinking about what could you do in designing a funnel that would, first of all, work technically and take that, that dirty smoke away from the ship. I very quickly thought of an airplane wing, somewhat Familiar and also an enthusiast of airplanes. And I know uh, that an airplane uh, flies because of the phenomenon of lift. Uh, when the uh, air of uh, passes over the wing because the top is curved, uh, the air, I um, can't remember, speeds up or slows down, but creates somewhat of a vacuum on top of the wing. And that vacuum is what's called lift, and that's what makes the plane fly. So I thought that principle could be applied in this case for a ship to create that sort of airflow that would uh, carry the smoke up and away. So um, as I'm sitting there, you know, just sketching the way I do, uh, I created this funnel that had wings on it and thought would, you know, also look beautiful and it would work. So You know, I designed it and came back to Miami and uh, Ted Harrison was having a birthday party and I was invited. So I thought as making a a present for him, I would make a model of my design. So I carved a wood model about, I don't know, six, seven inches tall, painted it in the carnival red, white and blue livery and gave him to gave it to him as a present. And uh, he loved it. So that was it. It was put in the specifications. And then when the contract was ultimately signed, not in Japan, but in Denmark, the funnel that I did design was, was part of the uh, contract to be built. But of course, the shipyard people, being naval architects, told Ted, how, you know, this funnel is, you know, it looks nice and so forth, but it'll never work. And uh, we can build you a, a beautiful, technically fine funnel. And besides that, we'll give you a big credit for, you know, making a simpler structure. So Ted, being a businessman, of course, uh, didn't just dismiss that out of hand. So he said, "Okay, well, why don't we uh, do an air, you know, a wind tunnel test and you test your funnel and test Joe's funnel? Long story short, my funnel beat the naval architect's funnel hands down. And then, you know, and then it just became continued and continued and continued. And the last version that I uh, designed for um, the dream that was a, a deck higher, I believe. So the funnel had to be lower in order to clear some bridges and some ports. So I redesigned that. And we had to do another wind tunnel test. And I went to that one. It was in Vienna. And did the test and they, you know, it's they blow smoke through the funnel in the the proper way and proper scale. They blow wind on it from all different directions and, you know, and photograph and measure the results. There's intakes on the model to see if anything comes in from the smoke. And uh, so they did it. And afterwards, the uh, uh, owner of the lab came up to me and he said, Joe, that was the best funnel we have ever tested in this uh, (laughs) lab. And the second best funnel was also your funnel on a previous ship. So there it is, QED.
1: There you go. That's so awesome. When you were developing this, because this funnel is so iconic these days, were you thinking at all from a marketing standpoint or strictly technical? You know, an architect,
0: or at least the, my belief in architecture is it's art, but it's art with a technical side. You know, it has to be built. It has to be functional. It has to be maintainable. You know, there's, it's it's. Too important to just say, oh, I'm going to make a sculpture, and that's going to be that. That's pure art, and that's fine. But, you know, for me, it was more interesting, more challenging, and so forth. So it's a combination. It was was coming up with the right idea that technically would work, then I knew that I could uh, manipulate design-wise to make it something really, really attractive and interesting. And, you know, that's the challenge of architecture.
1: In your book, Design on the High Seas, you talk about the Pinnacle Project, which was pretty much, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was basically an Oasis class initiative or type ship, but like some 20 years earlier?
0: Well, I think it was a lot better than an Oasis-type ship because an Oasis-type ship had an inner atrium. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it was more like a shopping mall than a cruise ship. And and our ship was more like a traditional cruise ship, but it had all sorts of interesting features on it that made it, uh, you know, if that ship were built today, it would be right on top of the market uh, in terms of features and possibilities and so forth.
1: And for the... Folks who aren't familiar with the Pinnacle project, this was like a class of ship that was going to be what over 100,000 tons and pretty much have like an open middle with a people mover on the ship and all the bells and whistles, a lazy river and all that.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. It was going to be a lot more than 100,000. It was maybe closer to 200,000. Wow. Uh, in fact, the, the Destiny was the first ship uh, for Carnival for anyone that exceeded 100,000 uh, tons. And I was made the Guinness Book of Records by being the first architect to design a passenger ship over 100,000 tons. That includes the Titanic and any other ship you can name uh, up until, uh, you know, these days. So but the idea was to create Ted and Mickey, one of Mickey Arison, Ted's son, who who took the Carnival cruise lines to the next level, way beyond the next level. I mean, he he expanded the company, and uh, you know, just did everything right, really. And um, we they they wanted to build something that was going to really knock the socks off the market, and to come up with features and so forth that would that would do that. So the ship had to be big. And I first thing I thought of with the People Mover is, you know, there would be it seemed to me a, a somewhat of a pushback from the market by building. This ship that was so huge and, and people, you know, the uh, people would think to themselves, do I do I want to go on a ship this big with so many people on board? And to me, the answer to that was, first of all, you make getting around the ship easy. So that's not a problem. And by building this bigger ship, it allows you to put on more features uh, and things to do and places to eat and everything to enhance the experience it couldn't do on a smaller ship. So that led to the, uh, the People Mover, which was a combination vehicle to get around the ship, but also a thrill ride, a real wow feature. You, it was a car that, that ran on a rail. And it ran around the top deck of the ship, uh, completely uh, going around the uh, perimeter of the ship, so you had this amazing view out to sea and it was a you know a real thrill ride and There were a couple of stations along the way that you could go from one place to the other and then at one point, when the uh, people mover car came around, the whole car and track lowered to the lower the, the highest um, main public room deck and then went back and forth so you had this amazing thrilling way to get around the ship that would be instead of you know instead of making the big ship a negative It made it a positive because this was, you know, just something great. And then there were other features, seven restaurants, you know, all sorts of interesting things that would have, you know, that would be uh, just as relevant today as it was uh, when that ship was designed. Everyone at Carnival loved it. Ted, Mickey loved it. And that's when the euro, you know, began going up and the price of the ship was in euros and it just changed the whole financial dynamic. And that's why it was never built.
1: How do you come up with concepts like the Cat's Bar on Carnival Fantasy or the Neon Bar on Carnival Ecstasy? because these are designs that really stand the test of time. You
0: said the, the real chestnut of this is I never believed in fashion or what's going on today in terms of design, either interior design, colors, uh, you know, fabrics that are in today and, and in, a, in a year or two it's gone not as you know something else is new. So I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to design something that was new. I never wanted to repeat myself. And even we did like on the on the fantasy class of ship, I think we did nine ships of, of that series where the floor plan or the GAP was pretty much exactly the same. But each one had its own individual feeling. You, you would you. As a a repeat passenger, you can go from one to the other. You would would know what the general program is. You knew how the food was. But in terms of what you actually saw and experienced, it was completely different. The idea being that even though these ships are huge and and even getting, you know, getting huger, if I can say that, it's still a confined space. It's not like a hotel in Vegas where you can, you know, it's themed in one. Everything is themed under one particular theme. That works because at a hotel, you can go out the door and go to the next theme hotel and so forth and so on. But on a ship, until you go into port, which is, you know, a limited time, you're you're married to that enclosed environment. So I wanted to give the designs a variety of feelings throughout each ship and throughout the fleet so that you never got... You, you always had to take notice of the interiors. The idea being that you were still discovering something new on the last day of the cruise. And I, th- I thought that that would lead to excitement and a desire to come back for more. And, you know, time has shown that that's exactly what happened.
1: Did your design taste change over time? I don't think it changed. I mean, I look back at older designs and
0: like you just say, the neon bar, for example, or Chinatown. I think they're just as relevant today as they ever were because, again, they weren't based on fashion or what's in today or trends. No, we never did any marketing studies. We never did focus groups. You know, they Ted Harrison and later Mickey just left it all up to me to, to create the product and uh, give it the personality and the design features that, you know, that it would make it a, a successful product. And then indeed, it is a product.
1: If you're going to pick one ship that you have done in your career and say, you know, this represents me at my aesthetic best, what mm-hmm. you, would that be?
0: Yeah, well, okay. Which one of your children do you like the best?
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tough question. I, I've always felt that what I like the best is the last ship that I've done because it represents – the culmination of everything that i have learned and felt and seen in the past so uh, under those set of circumstances the uh, the costa Diadema, which was my last ship what i did was learn more you know some more sophistication more technical features that could be done because the technology of lighting for example and other things had moved forward, and I always kept on top of all that. So we would have, you know, the latest technical features that would create the most interesting effects. And indeed, uh, you know, that's exactly what, what happened. So uh, the challenge was, in a way, was, was cost, because cost kept going up, relatively speaking. So the challenge was to make designs that would fit into the budget of the ship, the cost of the ship. Very proudly, I can say that that's pretty much exactly what I did. Ted Harrison and Mickey were not interested in paying extra costs for designs. I always had to work within the contract price. And believe me, that was a real negotiation because you make make a design. Then we have meetings with the shipyards where they say everything, you know, relatively speaking, they say everything's too expensive. And I say, no, it's not. And then we go back and forth in, in meetings and make compromises on designs and details. But I was very flexible with the yard. I I would listen to them, to their technical, you know, technical thinking and was able to modify the design, not to really change the impact of it, but allow them to make it easier for them to build. And believe me, that was very, very important because that allowed me, first of all, to use nicer details, more interesting details, more expensive uh, materials And, uh, you know, everything else. And they knew when the construction was going on, the shipyard, I mean, that I would be cooperative with them, you know, to look at inevitable uh, mistakes that they made and try to come up with solutions to those mistakes in the best economic sense. So we had a real partnership where both the shipyard and myself... And and really, the other owners' representatives had the end product in mind, and, and 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 you know, it wasn't a you know, it's it's my way or the highway, uh, you know, and that's pretty pretty much exemplar of how most architects work. So I was very good at uh, working with a shipyard and making it a real team effort, with me being the leader of the team, of course.
1: For me, when I stepped on Carnival Fantasy back in the '90s, what really stuck out was all the neon lights in the atrium Um, was the neon lights. Was that kind of a design uh, or was that more of a cost thing? Like why, why was there so much neon light used in that fan and those fantasy class ships? That
0: was one way of uh, creating different moods in the same area of the ship using the example of the atrium that you talked about Mm -hmm. there. I used a mix of uh, red, blue and green neon red, blue and green are the primary colors of light. And if you mix those, you know, those various colors, you can create any color, more or less how the pixels work on your computer monitor or Mm -hmm. TV. Uh, You know, it's not shooting odd purples and greens and and odd colors. What you see is always a mix of red, blue and green. And that's how, uh, you know, the colors are achieved. I put all of these lights in to have them controlled by a computer, which had various programs, which would slowly... Uh, fade and crossfade the lights and go from blue to green to orange or whatever so but let's say you went in you went through the atrium to go to dinner and the atrium was blue overall blue and then you go and you spend an hour and a half or whatever in the dining room you come out and it's no longer blue it's it's uh, red or you know something else again I I feel that that keeps your interest and your brain working and have you connected with the interiors Uh, the environment. So that was the purpose of it. I used neon because that was the only way to do it in in terms of technology in those days. That morphed into LEDs, basically exactly the same, red, blue, and green LEDs that could be mixed to create any color. And that was uh, a much better solution. It was much less expensive didn't throw off heat, didn't require high voltage, you know, so there, this was a product of the technical advances that were made in in lighting in this case. So, um, you know, so that was the idea, uh, you know, how that all came about. And, and that has always been used in one form or another in all the ships that I've worked on, the idea of changing ambiance in a room by changing the lighting through not just dimming, making it lighter or darker, but also using things to create color uh, changes that, again, you know, when you, when you see things in different colored lights, that really has a profound effect on the uh, visualization of the, of especially other colors that you see that are, you know, let's say the wood on the walls or the fabric on the chairs or the carpet and so forth. So it, it really is, it's sort of magical. I mean, what it does and, you know, it, it, it makes it really alive, all the surfaces, not just there, beautiful and sedate. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, Some ships like, uh, let's say Carnival Legend, they have like an overarching theme. Was there ever a theme you wanted to do, but never got around to?
0: Never. The only thing that I did, <laughs> only one design I changed in all the years, you know, almost 40 years I was working uh, for Carnival, that had nothing to do with oh the design itself. I, I did a disco, and at that time, uh, you know, this, um, the Disco Inferno song was out there. It was very hugely popular at the time. So I, I created a sort of Hades theme you know, with a simulated fire over the dance floor. And it was really neat. And Ted Harrison liked it, but he was superstitious. And he, you know, fire is the worst thing in the world that can happen on a ship. And he just didn't want to invoke the muses (laughs) and uh, allow that, you know, to have, you know, to have sort of fire honored the ship. So I made a whole new design. And that's it out of, I don't know how many hundreds of rooms I designed.
1: How many hours did you spend in front of the drawing board per ship? Hundreds?
0: More than hundreds, yeah. I would say, for each ship.
1: Yeah. When I was in Miami, not
0: in you know, I, I that's all I did, it was mm-hmm. draw. Uh when and you know, but we were gone uh, maybe a twenty, twenty five percent of the year visiting the shipyards, either inspecting the construction or more more than likely, uh, going over the um design development drawings and construction drawings and seeing mock-ups and, you know, getting it to a point where it could be realized and then the construction. So uh, it was very hands-on work. How do you
1: come up with a ship's design theme?
0: They all had what I used to, what I coined a central idea. Mm -hmm. That central idea was something that I developed to uh, sort of create the umbrella that all the designs would be uh, created under. Um, you know, the one that I sort of really 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 enjoyed doing was the um uh, the Carnival Conquest where the ship was going to sail out of New Orleans and so it had a French idea. So I thought I would create all the rooms as if they all inspired by one of the French or impressionist painters. So we uh, we did a uh, uh you know, uh Gauguin and uh it was the was the casino and I uh, you know, decorated things with reproductions of his paintings, his sort of murals and decoration, but m- even more so uh, created uh, what w- looked like the wood carvings that he did during his days in Tahiti. Did a Picasso, a, a, uh, a Van Gogh room, and I. it didn't follow a painting, but what I did was create twisted forms of columns and walls painted in a heavy impasto paint that Van Gogh might have done. And I mean, that was to me a lot of fun. Uh, The the main lounge was uh, from uh, the Moulin Rouge and, uh, you know, I I did, uh, you know, almost 50 ships. It's hard to remember.
1: Whenever it came time to design and create the spirit class, which came after the fantasy class,
0: um,
1: there was a couple of changes there, like a like a two deck promenade almost. And only one main dining room in the back of the ship instead of two regular dining rooms like the previous fantasy-class ship. Was all of that done for, like, passenger flow? Absolutely.
0: You know, I when when we started working on the GA of that, the GAP, we call it GA, so uh, I I wanted to take the things that we had learned in the past and things that could have been improved and build that into the GAP. So one of them was, um, in, in the previous ships, the atrium was located on the forward stair. So it was not in the center of the ship. And I thought absolutely the, the main lobby atrium and so forth needed to be in the center of the ship. So that was the thing that I insisted on and changed, you know, changed then. And then the restaurant, the issue was, you know, how to deal with the restaurant situation. We were always used to two restaurants, a forward and an aft with the, um, uh galley between the two and uh, that caused a real problem because if you wa- if you were going from let's say the lobby and you wanted to go to the aft restaurant you couldn't go directly through the forward restaurant to get to the aft restaurant because there was the galley blocking the way so you had to go up one deck go all the way uh, aft and then go down into the aft restaurant and i thought you know that works it was okay Uh, But I thought it could be really improved. And I felt like, okay, let's do it this way. Instead of doing the uh, two restaurants with a galley in between, I said, let's do the the galley below the restaurant and have the two decks of a larger restaurant right above it. And this way, the people can flow to that restaurant from both the main level and the upper level, completely unencumbered and going through shops and going through other areas and really make it a much more pleasant trip. And that the service from, you know, the waiter service would work by escalators. And I knew that would work because in the previous ships where the galley was in the middle, we still had escalators going from the galley up to the second level. So if the, if the waiters can go up one level in escalators, I posited, why can't they do it in two? Mm-hmm. And that just made the whole ship work so much better. It opens so many doors. And, uh, and uh, first, uh, the, especially the people that ran the restaurant, they, I think they practically fell out of their chairs when they uh, heard the idea in the first time. But then, you know, it began to sink in. And sure enough, it was, uh, you know, it, it worked like a charm. And, uh, you know, the rest is history on that one. And that also allowed me to have the atrium finish in a skylight at the top, which I had done on the uh, fantasy class, started that. But we could do something really, really interesting. The location of the casing, and that's the the chimney, where all the exhaust and all the pipes from the engine room go up into the funnel and out the top. That was right behind um, the... the uh, lobby so I was able to create the redesign the carnival funnel and so that the front part of it was over the atrium and I decided to make that out of instead of red painted steel red tinted glass so it created a really great um, visual from the lobby looking up in the daytime especially seeing the sky through this red glass and at night it was also spectacular so it was a that and, and many other changes in, in the uh, in the GA uh, allowed that, you know, allowed this to happen. It was a great success. People, it gave it. First of all, it gave the feeling on board as a much higher level ship. It was much. I don't know. From the passengers' point of view, it seemed like it was less dense, easier to get around. Just a, a higher standard, shall we say, just by virtue of the spatial design and presentation and, and circulation.
1: Joe, we were talking before we started recording about, I've only read two books in my life twice, and this is one of them, Design on the High Seas, Setting the Scene for Entertainment Architecture Aboard, Cruise Ships, Joe Farkas, the architect for Carnival Cruise Line, Holland America, and Costa Cruises. By the way, Joe, how many pages are in here? Because there are a lot.
0: Uh, I think overall there's 250, some of them are not of the the ship itself, but some little anecdotal pictures or drawings, uh, reproductions of some drawings I even made when I was a teenager, as well as uh, travel sketches that I make today. It's about 55,000 words. And I think there's, you know, over 200 images in it. So it's, uh, I think it's an attractive book. I was, you know, I was very proud when I got my uh, preliminary copy and, uh, and, and I was able to say a big, wow. finally it's done and there it is in my hands i couldn't believe it
1: we've been talking with joe farkas the entertainment architect for carnival cruise line costa cruises and holland america joe thanks again for coming on the show
0: well my pleasure i mean god i for a guy that read the book twice what could i I couldn't do better couldn't do more thank
1: you (laughs) this book is the perfect gift for a cruise lover in your life um it's just it really takes you behind the curtain of what was going on there's some great stories in here too like back in the day going to a german shipyard and the company designed u boats so they got the heck out of there and went to another shipyard just great stories in here if you have a cruise lover in your life they will love this plus there's tons like 250 glossy pictures i think of different Carnival ships in here. Um, You can pick it up where you buy your favorite books, so I guess like Amazon or any place online. I'll link it up in the show notes as well. Also, to make it easier, I'll just forward the URL cruiseradio.net slash book to the Amazon page. This way you can pick it up right there. Joe is also nice enough to give me six copies to give away to you. All you have to do is answer this question. Joe was put in the Guinness Book of World Records for what cruise ship? Email your answers to doug at cruiseradio.net, and we'll give the first six correct answers a free book. Just drop me a line, doug at cruiseradio.net. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you on Thursday.
0: Today's show is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash Choose from over 150,000 titles delivered straight to your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or tablet at audibletrial.com/cruise.
1: Say goodbye